Well, welcome to Worldview Matters. We are so happy you joined us. Bob, I'm happy to join you again this week and looking forward to a spirited discussion, a continuation of what we started last week. So, welcome. Yep, Ross, it's always great to be with you. And as you know, last week we launched a series called, uh, you know, why are, why do Christians act like jerks sometimes? And, and and we do. You know, we've got to be honest about this. You know, question eight in our worldview uh, series is always what core commitments ought to be present in a particular worldview. And we've been looking at Christian theism and some of the core commitments of Christian theism, unfortunately, are not, are not always evident in some Christians. True. I've, I've been reading a number of things since our last show. It prompted me to go back and read some things from C.S. Lewis and Chesterton and uh, Ravi Zacharias, and really, really interesting as it relates to Christians and how we act and whether or not we have a true apologetic. And, you know, you can look at this issue of apologetics from a couple of different standpoints. One is we, as we are sharing our faith or as we are involved in a discussion about Christianity relative to other worldviews, do we have a proper perspective or a proper worldview? The other thing on apologetics is, what does our, our life say about what we believe? And that's where we're talking here about uh, whether we are acting as jerks or not, because it's not whether we as Christians are showing an apologetic to the world or not. We are. We are showing them something through our lives. The question is, is that apologetic one that is consistent with our faith or not? And that's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. Uh, if you, you can talk about apologetics or you can talk about how you act in, in terms of your worldview, where the, where the rubber meets the sky. And that's philosophical and theoretical, so to speak. But where, where, how are we living it? I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, when I think of apologetics and just, you know, for our readers and listeners' benefits, you know, ap- apologetics is basically the art or the science or the discipline of being able to give some kind of a reasonable defense for right. the things that you believe in. You and I have talked about that before. And exactly. Th- you know, th- there seem to be three broad categories of apologetics. And, you know, you mentioned some of my heroes in the area of apologetics, uh, Ravi and or C.S. Lewis, who's uh, been with the Lord now for several decades. But, you know, there's, there's, the, there's the realm or the discipline of evidential apologetics. You know, we look at the evidence uh, supporting a particular worldview. You and I had a series back around uh, the holidays where we looked at some of the fulfilled prophecies of Christ uh, from the Old Testament. You know, a, a second area of apologetics is philosophical ap- apologetics. It's the idea that, you know, we can think about things and come to certain views of, about God based on that. It's the idea that because all men have a sense of right and wrong, that's an, a philosophical evidence that there is a moral being behind us. There's something moral. There's something deeper than just our own specific idea of right and wrong. There's a, a concrete, absolute sense of right and wrong. But, but there's a third area of apologetics, and, and you're mentioning this right now, and that's what I call incarnational apologetics. It's, it's the idea that 
the world ought to be able to look at the lifestyle of people who follow Christ or who follow any worldview for that matter and say, are they living consistent with that lifestyle? Is there evidence that they really believe what they say they believe? Yeah, and, and uh, Robbie calls this experiential relevance. Yes, I love that. That's exactly yeah. that's what it is, yeah. What he calls the three things that you just mentioned, he calls logical consistency, imperial adequacy, and experiential relevance. And that's, you know, we might hold those thoughts and we could go to those. Uh, I think we've got two or three shows where me- how you measure a worldview, how you measure a person's application of their worldview. Uh, those are some interesting things I think we could talk about. Hey, Ross, can, can, can you mention those again just so our, our listeners can get a feel for them? Absolutely. Classical way of testing worldview and from Ravi Zacharias, who's considered to be by many the world's foremost Christian apologist alive today. And obviously, apology, apologetics does not mean to apologize for. It means to have an ability to debate the facts and issues relating to. So it's a it's a de- definitive statement about know- knowing how you could determine or how you um, relate uh, verbally what you believe. Logical consistency, imperial adequacy, experiential relevance. So those are the ways that he believes, and and this is consistent with what you've just mentioned, Bob. It's just different words for the same thing. Well, and and our our topic during this series of shows is really kind of looking at that third area, that experiential relevance. I think that, you know, my grandmother used to say, Bobby, you're the only Bible some people will read. And and that's there's something true about that. It, it it sort of gets into the area of experiential relevance or incarnational consistency. If we're living like Christ, people will look at that and go, "Wow, there must be something substantive here to this person's worldview." You know, the scary part of that is how many times have you heard someone say, "So and so is a Christian." And if that's a Christian, I don't want to be anything like him or I don't want to be anything like her. That's terrifying because you know that someone has looked at us and said exactly the same thing. As a matter of fact, I can look in the mirror some mornings and say the same thing about myself. I can too, Ross. And I think any anybody who's honest will have to say that I fall far short of the ideal, You know, which gets us back to really – the idea of what it, what are we trying to live up to? You know, honestly, it, it seems like a lot of times one of the criticisms against Christians is they're so legalistic. They're so they've got these hundred and fifteen point seven rules that they try to live their life by. But Ross, as, as I live, as I read the Scripture, I don't hear long sets of rules. I hear something really a little bit more more challenging than that. I hear live like Christ. I hear Eli Christ. You know, even Jesus said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples, my followers, if you have love one for another. And how many times have you and I said, boy, if that's that's a Christian, I don't want to be like it. Or if that person is a follower of Christ, I don't want to have anything to do with them. And, And the idea behind that is they're not acting loving. They're not acting like Christ. They're acting in a very self-serving, selfish way. And that's what turns us off to this. Right. 
And, well, and I, I think that we've got to be honest and realize that people who don't know Christ aren't Christian theists. They stumble over that. Well, it's easy to do, and I think it puts us on guard. Although we don't want to get to the point of legalism, we have to recognize that we are still we still sin. We are not under the condition of sin after we accept Christ, but we still will act in a way that's sinful. And so we're constantly, we should be on guard, should be attempting as best we can to be uh, in line with the way God would have us live, and that requires prayer and submission to to His guidance in our life. Well, I really agree with that. And well, I, you know, this brings up the question: if if Christians are sometimes the the greatest unapologetic for their Christian for their worldview, what can we do about that? I mean, what should those who pur- who purportedly follow Christ? What should they do to be a, you know, to, to basically portray experiential relevance to this culture that we live in. There are a couple of books that have been written. Um, How Now Shall We Live is one that was uh, written by Chuck Colson. I think Janet Parshall was, may have been his co-writer on that. And then the, uh, the man, the pastor from Labrie in in Europe, uh, whose name I can't call right offhand, uh, also wrote one of a similar name back about uh, 30 years ago, I guess, maybe 40 years ago. Right. So right. The, talk about, about uh, Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer, yes, Francis Schaeffer. Well, you know, I don't think we need to go much further than the Sermon on the Mount. That seems right. to be the place that... I'm gonna I'm gonna use that locus classicus term again, Ross. Uh oh, here that we go seems, again. No, that seems to be the place in Scripture where Jesus says, "These are my commandments." You know, the, the Great Commission, which most Christians, you know, trumpet as their marching orders, says, "Go into all the world and make disciples and baptize them and get them under the Trinitarian preaching of the of the gospel." But then it says and teach them to obey everything whatsoever I've commanded you. This is Jesus speaking. But what he commanded actually can be summed up in the Sermon on the Mount. And, whoa, when I read the sermon, I feel a lot like Mark Twain. You know, Mark Twain said, it's not what I don't understand about the Bible that bothers me. It's what I do understand. Yeah, right, right. You well, know, one of the things, one of the things that I did uh, this over the past week is there were a couple of blogs I went and accessed and you know we're not the only people talking about this there are other people out there that are saying things like you know 10 reasons why I don't like most Christians or seven reasons why I don't I don't like most Christians you know you and I could probably add to that and a lot of it might be things taken out of our own journals as we say but yeah what we want to know is the guy who wrote seven how did he miss the other three (laughs) (laughs) or how did they miss the other 107 that's that's a great start. Maybe that's a good list for us to see, or two lists for us to talk about. Well, you know, the the the, the first list came from a guy named T- Tony Morgan, and we want to give him credit for this. and And Tony's a Tony's a believer. Tony's not an unbeliever, so he's looking at this from the same angle that you and I are. That uh, you know, he sort of looked at his you know our own. He's looked in the mirror, if you will, and he's come up with ten things that he finds troubling. I, you you. you 
let's take a minute. Let me read this list for you. Okay. I think it gets us into it. He says, first, first of all, uh, the first reason I don't like most Christians is because they consistently seem angry, bitter, and worried. I, I got to be honest, guilty as charged. Many times I am angry, bitter, and worried. I, I don't want to be that way, but boy, I often am. Uh, the second one is they don't dream big dreams. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what he means here, but he, he, he quotes that passage that God is able to accomplish infinitely more than we would ever dare ask or hope. And, you know, I know in my own experience, we say we want to see our culture changed. And we all do. We all have problems with our culture. Maybe it's time that we started really dreaming a big dream that God could change our culture instead of going into, you know, our little uh, ghettos. Maybe it's time that we went out into the culture and started believing. An interesting thing about the point you just made, Bob, I think it's easy for Christians sometimes to have a fatalistic view. Fatalistic meaning that I don't have to deal with reality of today because Jesus is coming. And a lot of times you're going, you'll hear people say, he's coming. He's coming really soon. You know, all these things point to the fact that he's coming soon. And they may. They, are, they do to, to a great degree, I think. But Peter thought the same thing, uh, you know, 2,000 years ago, roughly 2,000 years ago. Uh, so I don't think that that's a place we need to hide. It's a place we need to be aware of and live as though as though Jesus were coming back today, but all live as though he were not coming back in our lifetime at all. So dealing with, maybe that's a bad word, not just dealing with, but accepting life as it is, uh, working to apply ourselves in that life as God would have us apply ourselves in every situation. And so it, we're not looking at it and saying, oh, we don't have to deal with this because Jesus is coming back. And I think it's easy sometimes for Christians to think in that way. Maybe that's the point that he's making. I think we need to attack life, so to speak. Well, Ross, I think you're on to something. Um, you know, and, and part of the Christian worldview is, you know, what is reality and how do we encounter, uh, what's, the, what, what's our view of history? And, uh, you know, a bibliocentric worldview says that this current world that we live in is incredibly important to God and to his kingdom. Uh, this isn't just a place that we bide time until we go to heaven. It's a place that we're supposed to fill and fulfill and multiply and control it uh, for the glory of God. It's interesting that I recall one of the reformers uh, being asked the question, what would you do if you knew that Jesus was coming back in 10 years? And this reformer said, I would plant my apple tree today. That's, that's an amazing worldview perspective. It is. It, it, but, it, but it gets back to one of the things I think we're talking about here, that Christians sometimes have a very truncated view of the world, and it makes them isolationist. It makes them reactionary. It makes them fearful. And if we do believe that Jesus is coming back, and we do, and he may be coming back, as you said, soon, but that doesn't mean that we should just go up on a mountaintop and wait for him. It means that we should be engaged in the world around us and engaged in a way that the people in this world around us 
should look at our good deeds and go, wow, there must be a God in heaven because of the way these people act. You know, as an interesting little sideline, I'm, I'm obviously older than you and, as a matter of fact, probably older than 99% of the people who may be listening to us. But sometimes I will sit and, and relax, so to speak, and I will think, I have so much to do, and I'm not sure how much time I have left to do it. And I get feel guilty before you know relaxing or taking an afternoon nap or something like that. And I don't think God intends us to do that. But I, I just I feel like I have so many things that I want to accomplish or do, and I there's a constant tension. I know you've always spoken of the tension of life, but the tension of life between. Uh, relaxing and recuperating and being active in producing or achieving or moving forward. And that's, a, that's one of the many tensions of life that we live in. And, and to your point, uh, living in the tension, and there, we've mentioned several of these over the course of our broadcast, being able to live in a tension requires maturity. It, it requires an ability to hold on to one thing that's true and yet, at the same time, not let go of another thing that's also true. Great example that you're using. Does God want us to be industrious and to work hard and to, you know, be focused and uh, work as if all of our work matters to the Lord and will be rewarded? Absolutely. But that same Bible, which teaches that, also says, be careful that you don't forsake the Sabbath. Make sure you've got plenty of rest. And oh, by the way, also remember... It's not just your work, it's Christ working in you that causes these things to happen. Well, logically, sometimes those things don't fit together, but it requires maturity to be able to live in those kind of tensions. And basically, Ross, that's back to what you and I have been saying to each other in this series, that Christians need to grow up. They need to mature. They need to act like Christ by being more and more like him in their attitudes. Gets us right back to the Sermon on the Mount again. And we are, there's no one that can be excluded from that group. We all need to do that because we, again, we don't act perfectly after we come to know Christ. We are perfected through his grace and by his blood and death on the cross and resurrection and ascension, but we are still we still have the capacity to be a jerk, to go back to the title of this program. I'm reading down the list here of 10 reasons that I don't like Christians. And number six on the list says, Christians seem to be more concerned with the BMW next door than the lost person who drives it. And I had to laugh when I read that because often that it does seem to be the place. You know, that does seem to be true. I know there have been times in my life when I've been guilty of envy. I've looked at people who had more than I had and went, wow, I sure wish I had that thing they've got. Uh, whether it was a better football team to root for or, you know, a possession that they had. And often I overlook the fact that, hey, if those people are living for temporal values, wow, their life is going to be a going to be bankrupt at the very end of it. And I know those things to be true because I have a Christian worldview, but I don't always put action behind those convictions. Wow, guilty as charged. It, isn't it interesting how deeply we can argue about something as, um, as uh, 
worth, unworthwhile or worthless as a football team. Tug McGraw. I don't know how many people will remember Tug McGraw. Tug McGraw was, still is, but he's passed away. Tim McGraw's, the, the country singer's father. Someone came in to Tug McGraw, who was in the, in the dressing room when he was pitching for the Phillies, I think it was, back years ago. And he was very relaxed. He was a laid-back guy. One of the reporters said, why are you so relaxed today? This is a big, big game. He said, it's the 100-year rule. He said, the 100-year rule? What in the world are you talking about? He said, 100 years from now, nobody will know what happened today. Doesn't make any difference. <laughs> and so, I, you know, I thought when I heard that, um, that's so true. We get, we get our panties in the wad, so to speak, to uh, resort to the vernacular of the proletariat. Uh, over things that are really lack meaning, but we you know, sometimes don't focus on the things that have real meaning. You know, you're exactly right. And, you know, the flip side of that coin is 100 years from now, people won't care. They won't remember who won American Idol. They won't remember who won the World Series. They won't remember. Of course, you and I will remember who won the World Series because we know <laughs> all the statistics. Yeah, right. But, but on the flip side of that is God will remember. You and I have often exhorted each other and said, you know, don't, let's not forget at the judgment seat of Christ, we're going to have to give an account for every idle word. There is going to be a day when we're going to be examined and we're going to be examined for the very things we're talking about on this show, Ross, uh, areas that we didn't live up to Christ likeness. We just didn't do that. And the Lord's going to say, why didn't you do that? Right. And it's going to be embarrassing. You know, if, if we can be embarrassed in heaven, I don't think there's probably going to be shame and guilt there because Christ has taken away all the consequences of sin. But I often do wonder what there might be a sense of some sense of loss. I wished I had been more like Christ, acted more like Christ while I was on earth. And you unfortunately, know, I'm not there. That is one of the tensions that we live in. What will heaven be like? What will we think, act, know, feel? Will there be some of the emotions of uh, shame there? Or will everything be uh, nirvana? That's a very interesting discussion. I'll have to take a back seat when we have that discussion because I know very little. I know there's a lot written about that, but I'm, we're getting far afield. But that is very, very interesting. Well, it's question number four on our worldview list, our large eight questions. You know, what happens when we die? You know, I think that a lot of Christians live as if there will be no judgment for them, that Christ paid for their sins, and therefore it's a, you know, that we go, we miss judgment entirely. And, uh, you know, I, I, I agree with you. This isn't the, the show to talk about, you know, the last things as it relates to a Christian worldview, but in some ways, this question does relate to why Christians act like jerks, because I think that many Christians don't have a clear perception of what happens when they die. They think we go immediately to heaven, we don't pass go, you know, we collect $200, and you know, there we have it. But in reality, the Scripture says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, not the great white throne judgment. We're going to miss that one. But if we all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and he recalls every idle word, that ought to change the way we talk about our neighbor or we, you know, gossip about 
the guy at church who we don't like his particular brand of cologne or whatever. What this does, I mean, now it's getting back to, boy, that's a motivation to be careful how we live down here. Well, I think all those things point to the fact that we need to be very wary of how we're living. Uh, and I think, Bob, that's interesting. I know we're going through the 10 points for the for the listeners who may have picked it up right here. We're going through 10 points of, of basically why why Christians sometimes act as jerks or why someone doesn't uh, want to look at a Christian. I can't remember. What's the title of the of the article that you read, Bob? Well, this is a blog by Tony Morgan, who is a believer, a very, uh, he's, a, he's a prominent leader in Christian circles. And so this is a guy that's, that's in the Christian camp who recognizes the same things we're talking about. And, you know, we may not have time to talk about all 10 of his reasons, but, but he, he's getting at the same thing we're talking about, that Christians are inconsistent. In fact, his reason number eight is they're fake. They dress up a certain way on Sunday and they live as completely different people the rest of the week. So you see this, uh, this, this religion, this religious atmosphere on when religion is going on, but a very worldly attitude and atmosphere when they're out in the secular world. And, you know, Ross, uh, Francis Schaeffer talked about a lot about that, about how Christians need to be, need to have integrity, that they're, their lives ought to be the same whether you see them on Monday morning or Thursday night or Sunday morning. They ought to be the same all the way across. And unfortunately, we're not always there. I heard a guy say one time, he was talking about somebody else. He said, uh, that guy, what do you have? why do you have anything to do with him? He said, he is a confirmed alcoholic. And the other guy said, well, at least he ain't no quitter. So I thought that's, that's taking something bad, making something good out of it. But, but that, that's true of us. We need to be the same and not meaning that we need to be a jerk all the time. We need to be on the other end all the time. But I think that all of us would say that we are inconsistent in the way that we live our Christian lives. I know, Bob, that we've jumped around on this list that, uh, that Morgan has written and let's, take the next show, come back and talk with us. I think we've talked about points one, two, four, six, and eight. We'll go through the other points and then summarize that. And I think everybody out there probably could check off five or six of these and say, yep, that's me. Sorry that that's the case, but maybe it'll bring some consistency to our ability to our willingness to look at ourselves and say, where can we make some changes in life? Bob, always good to be with you. Let's uh, see if we can spend the time between now and the next show trying not to act like jerks as believers. Neil, look forward to seeing you next time, Bob. You too, buddy. This has been Worldview Matters, brought to you by Big Brains Media. To leave feedback for Ross or Bob, visit us at www.bigbrainsmedia.com.